Hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow travelers along the way. Welcome to another episode of the Avalon Mentors Podcast. Mr. Will Lester. How are you? I am very well. Christ is risen. He is truly risen. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a really it's been an interesting weekend. It's been an interesting week before that. The trigium always strikes me as uh ever new and ever something to uh to experience. It's really fantastic to have gone through it and be on the other side now. So I, yes, I, I sang at Tenebrae and we attended uh, services on Friday and then on Saturday vigil uh, Sunday morning. It was, it was really, it was quite delightful. Um, and and I found out all sorts of neat trinkets and ideas and things about Tolkien along the way too, which I'm eager to really you into the studio audience. Um, I know that we were going to meet last Friday, I think it was before Good Friday, which was Annunciation, mm -hmm. if I remember right. And wanted to point out to those that don't know that that's also the date of the throwing the ring into the fire. The Feast of the right. Event. Tolkien was always very specific in, in what he wanted the dates of his events to fall upon. So, right. It's, yeah, it's, the throwing of the ring into the fire was the Annunciation. And if I'm not mistaken, that's also traditionally held to be, in fact, the calendar date of Good Friday, isn't it? Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. So it's, it's, a, it's a dual um, power day, I suppose you say. Yeah, it's a dual power day. Triple power day if we include the secondary world of, of Middle Earth. A triple power day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. I think his vision extended so far as to see those connections and to see why yeah. the Christian idiom, the Christian message was such a, um, for lack of a better word, a godsend, right? right. How powerful that was in this defeat of the powers that were against us as humans. Yeah, need to see it. And I think, again, you know, uh, we have the, um, oh, what is it? The, the, the event of the, the uh, Good Friday, just last week, which really signifies the birth of the church. It's the, it's the creation of the Christian church there. So the, the Good Friday and then the resurrection on, on Easter Sunday. So mm -hmm. that's kind yeah. of strange. I had a revelation which uh, I, I've been mulling over. And, you know, I, I was just thinking of something because it's what I do. I think of things. And uh, I was thinking about the idea of the Logos in the ancient world. You know, and most people yeah. are unfamiliar with the Logos these days. So um, it, it, they may have heard of Plato's forms or things like that. But the Logos is um, basically it's an idea of mathematics um, governing everything that exists, this pattern mm -hmm. of, uh, the, of the world that then later is interpreted to be the Christ himself, you know, in John's gospel uh, in, in the beginning was yeah. the word Logos. But the ancient world saw the Logos as this immutable pattern. And no matter what you did, 
you were going to be part of that pattern. And so really there was a problem between fate, as we call it now, and free will, that the fatedness mm -hmm. August meant that no matter what you did, you're going to be fit into that pattern. So really your, your individuality and your free will were meaningless to a certain degree. And so though it was beautiful, it was wonderful. It was also a little bit demoralizing, I suppose you could say. Um, yeah. And there's, there's not the existence of the person, the human exists, but the person as such doesn't exist in, or at least a human person doesn't exist in that kind of system that does it. Yeah. That's the terminology is the person, the personhood, the individual person. Now, Cameron Thompson or William Lasseter don't matter. Just we, we right. are nodes upon that, that tremendous flower of life. But then when the baptism of the logos occurs, which is to put it another way, the incarnation, the logos is a conscious being that takes form and walks among us because right. loved us because we were, we were, we were worthy of love. That was a monumental event changed the course of human history. And I, in some ways, I think one could say um, whether you believe that or whether you, I uh, think that's historically true in some ways it's superfluous because it, you have to acknowledge that it was an event, whatever that event was, that absolute right. vision as humans of what we are. So. Well, absolutely right. I mean, there's this huge, there's a, there's a mass cultural consciousness shift, a shift in the way that we um, think about what's possible, the way that we think about individual substances of human nature these yeah. individual organisms running around that we now call persons. I mean, that, that, that idea with all that's loaded into it today didn't really, I mean, only really came out of conversations around the nature of the incarnation. Yeah. And so whether or not you accept the incarnation as historical fact, it, you have to acknowledge at least historically the mythical, if you will, uh, the mythical significance of it. Yeah, the power of it. And as uh, Guardini yeah. says in that great quotation, a symbol, an idea, a symbol is as real as a chemical or a bodily organ. It is something right. which changes a person when you when you accept the thing. And then, of course, there's belief. There's the belief that this is true, that this really occurred. And that is an right. extra power to it. It motivates people to do all sorts of tremendous things. Absolutely. And because not only the incarnation, but that the logos, the logos actually became flesh is a scandalous enough sort of idea. <laughs> But that then the Logos submitted to death, yeah. and entered into Hadith, going into the underworld, uh, under suffering, undergoing the process of mortality, and by that exploding mortality from the inside, mm -hmm. um, and, and conquering death, and then rising from death again, that it should have the power to rise from death. That's easy to understand. It's immortal, it's immutable, it's eternal, it's, it's the Logos. But that it was able to possibly to go to, to die, that the Logos died and rose again, is, 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 gives a whole different kind of under, like orientation towards what, how we think about death and what death is or can be, uh, or any, and, and any, any smaller gradation of death, any, any other inkling or mortality, the woundedness, suffering, pain, disasters, all of these things then, are then have been imbued with the logos too, not just as instrumental events, but have become part of God mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and those channels, they can become channels of the divine. Yeah. You, you know, there's, um, there are two passages in the passion that have always stuck with me, even since I was a young guy. 
And, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln used to walk around with Shakespeare and the King James Bible when, when he went on his lawyer route, and that was all he ever read. And I, I'm thinking I, I would go around with the Bible and Tolkien. Those would be my two tomes that I carry with <laughs> Right. You know, when, you read the, when you read the Bible, you read the passages, and there are two passages that have just stuck with me in the, that passion. Mm -hmm. One is where Christ uh, on the cross says, Ali, Ali, Lama, Sabachthani. And my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's always struck me as just this peculiar piece. But von Balthasar, I remember Hans Urs von Balthasar wrote about this extensively. And I think he got in hot water about it too, because I, I think he made the claim sure. that at that point, the Christ was separate from the God. There was a moment where he experienced the separation that humans feel from the divine, this doubt or, or just emptiness. Um, and that was well, he wasn't just faking. This wasn't like some kind of play or drama that he was acting out. There was a moment right. where he really felt this abandonment. Uh, and, and that yeah. passage is that's powerful because that you, it's peculiar and powerful because you wouldn't find it anywhere in the classical world. You have images right. of the rest of God or you have images of the God that gets torn apart and reconstituted. What you don't have is you don't have images of the God saying, where is the God? <laughs> <laughs> that's really crazy weird. God. It's weird. Yeah. But the other is, you know, that's I was gonna say that's that's something that um you know, the the sort of unconventional philosopher of our day, uh, Slavoj Žižek, mm. um, you know, notably atheist guy, you know, whatever, but he's he talks about these he's he's always making references to, to the gospels uh, and various things and, and you know how he's got insights into it and whatnot. But it's an interesting observation he made. He's like You've got, you know, here's a real revolution. This is more revolutionary than anything Marx could come up with mm -hmm. of a God who himself becomes an atheist. Like God himself becomes an atheist for a brief moment. And that's somebody that we can identify because he's entered into the depths of this, this, of the abyss, yeah. of the abyss and staring up from the abyss, even if temporarily he's even entered into there. That's a radical kind of claim. That is a radical claim. I like uh, Zizek. Uh, he's very... Um, intriguing and I think profound as a thinker. Um, he is, I don't know if he's a professed atheist or if he's an agnostic. Yeah, to be fair, he's, I, I don't think he would make that kind of commitment because he's too honest for that. All right. But that, he's right in that moment that Christ has a moment, not where he just denies God, but where he experiences the complete just loss of God, which is right. just a stunning concept to me. It's something you would never find in the ancient world, is what I'm saying. Is a, there's moments in yeah. gospel right. you never find in the ancient world images. And, and uh, that's really, I mean, sure, you find images of God torn up or you find images of God walking among humans. But there's always a sense that this is a God and will stay a God. And it's not going to change. That's not going to change. Yeah. Um, that's what you mentioned uh, von Balthasar on that point that God became separated or Christ separated from the Godhead in some way yeah right 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 that that Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani and uh, the other point it'll come back to me when I don't need it but um, oh uh, this is why I think it, that Tolkien was so keen on bringing these images into his work but startlingly he doesn't bring Christian images into his work and i've always that's kind of strange to me too why why didn't tolkien bring there's not much mention in tolkien of god or gods or of a redeemer there's no mention obviously of the christ in our world or any of that because mm -hmm. it's a secondary world and yet we refer to tolkien almost as though he were gospel and other people see him mm -hmm. as profoundly influential over their spiritual lives and 
and right. think in a Christian sense. I don't but know. Why what... shouldn't he be? He he was. I mean, he expl- in some of the letters he talks about writing a, you know, his world is very intentionally pre-Christian, not non-Christian, yeah. because the the whole premise for the for Middle Earth, right, is that it's our world a very very long time ago in a galaxy not so far away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and this so is. It's almost as though the words, the names they have for the gods and for the spiritual powers are just other names for the same thing. Right. And because he's, because what he's able to do, and this is what I think people find very compelling, so compelling about Tolkien's world, especially when you really delve into the Silmarillion, you get a sense of what are, what are the supernatural, the divinities, the pantheon that exists in this world of Middle Earth and what are the roles that they play. The, when you come to understand that within this secondary world, you start to be able to get a glimpse of what, the, for instance, the medieval Christian is see like the eyes with which they see the world. Because for the ancients, for the early Christians, for Christians, I mean, not so early, even in our own day, who just don't happen to have lived through the, the, the sort of the disenchantment of the, of, of the modern West, um, I'm thinking in particular some Ethiopian Christians that I know, uh, Eritrean, in, in fact, but, but part of the, you know, Tewahedo church, uh, who their world is still very much enchanted with spirits and the powers of the universe isn't just sort of this Aristotelian mathematical formula, but the sun, the moon, and the stars, the wind, this mountain, that river are really personal beings imbued with agency mm-hmm. that are really alive. And like that seeing entering into this secondary world of middle earth we're able to for a moment glimpse what a traditional person actually in our world a christian traditional Mm -hmm. person who's a christian views our world as in a pre-modern non-modern way that's a really good point i've often thought about this when studying history the motives for actions in the ancient world are sometimes incomprehensible unless you think like they thought, and unless you see exactly. the world in that charged way, uh, if if you don't account for their sense of spirituality, some things they do as a people are just, you know, what what on earth? Um, the bog people in the Celtic world, you know, that would be strangled mm-hmm. and tossed into the bogs, apparently went willingly to do it. Like mm-hmm. they were willingly strangled and put into what? You know, the, the Inca princesses who would go up on the mountain mm-hmm. electrocuted by lightning bolts. They did it willingly. They sat there with a piece of tin on their head waiting to be electrocuted for the gods. Um, the fact that the Spartans wouldn't fight on certain days because of the holy days. Right. You know, what? You've got the Persians descending on you, buddy. What the heck? Um, but unless you see it as, a, as symbolic, as religion, as um, electrical charge, it makes no sense at all. No sense. That's exactly right. Electrically charged. Your they because they live in a different world. Yeah. They live in a different world. In fact, there's geopolitical conflicts of our own in within our own lifetime anyway. That are that the real crux of the matter comes between the fact that you've got peoples that are living in two different worlds, and that's why they can't understand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the you know, the one side is incomprehensible to the other. Yeah. Not because they're crazy, but because they literally live in a different world. They, we share the same environment, but a radically different world. Radically different world, a different, different worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And so with Tolkien's work, you do get a sense that this is probably how people uh, dealt with the world in general. They weren't stupid. Yeah. They weren't 
they weren't fools, but they, they didn't think in terms of a mechanized universe the way the way that we're dealing right. with. No, it's full of persons. That's that's why, yeah, persons. That's why I love it. I sent you that video of Tolkien responding to the question about the eagles. I think yeah. that was the best because uh, Tolkien was a guy. He was he thought like an ancient. I mean, there are people that do this. He did. Yeah, you know, they still think like uh, the ancient world did, either through study or just through nature. And and Tolkien did. And so when he's asked about mm -hmm. the eagles, um, I'll have to maybe I can insert the clip here or something, but. Right. He's asked about why didn't they just fly the eagles into into Mordor and drop the ring into the fire, right? Helicopters. Right. And Tolkien must have been old when he answered this because he's very doddering and he kind of takes his time and he finally says, I said him the same thing I will say to you. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this is so great. Uh, yeah. You know, if you don't, if you get it, you get it. And if you don't get it, exactly. shut up. Shut up. <laughs> I mean, you say nothing of the Mordor Air Force. I mean, the Nazgul <laughs> flying around in the casino. Mordor Air Force. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, and, and again, our punching bag of Peter Jackson. I wonder if that's sometimes why I don't like his stuff is because he doesn't get it. He doesn't, he doesn't think like it. an ancient. You know, he thinks like a monster. Right. And I think that's a key insight that you made, that Tolkien is able to think like an ancient through long study, through his immersion in these uh, magic spells, yeah. that's what they are. Because remember, yeah. in Anglo-Saxon, the word spell is the word for story. A story is a magic spell. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and his, his really imbibing these magical spells, these potions that he's able to then re, uh, say regurgitate out, but able to, to, to recite out. He, like, like Snorri Sturluson, are lore masters. And both of them he, are like the, they're the Elrond figure. And they're able to impart lore to us to allow us to begin to see that too, if we will, to be able to see in that same way, I should say, yeah. if we will. Yeah. And there are those artists and uh, thinkers and philosophers uh, in the world today that are capable of doing that. They are yeah. seen as freaks or seen as um, under, you know, underground, the, the, what are they called? Mm -hmm. Cult-like, you know? And mm -hmm. we're not talking whack jobs. We're just talking misfits in a different misfits. way. A misfit. Yeah. Right, an mm -hmm. uh, They don't have a place necessarily where they say, oh, I'm part of that society. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this is, okay, so I, I, I'm not intentionally making a bridge here, but this gets me to something which I've been thinking about and um, just the similarities that I found between Tolkien and uh, Dostoevsky. And um, okay. I, don't see, I don't know whether Tolkien read Dostoevsky or not. But, uh, and I won't know until, actually there's a book coming out that I really am eager to get. Um, let's see here. It's called uh, Tolkien's Library, an Annotated Checklist by Aranzo Chili. Like, this is high, high this is like geek level nine, maybe geek, geek level. Yeah. Because basically it goes through and he catalogs what books were on the shelf of Tolkien, right? Like who mm -hmm. would care? Well, I care, right? I would, that, that's it's good. Glad somebody went and uh, yeah. documented that. I mean, if, for instance, we know Tolkien had on his shelf uh, Dante or Chaucer, we can assume that he at least glanced at those books. You know, and if, for instance, he had on his, his shelf Marx and Engels, we would assume that he was at least familiar with those guys. Right. So if he has Dostoevsky on his shelf, these guys, no, no art is made in a vacuum. And frequently you have men and women who read other men and women and 
enjoy their stuff and incorporate pieces of their art into the art that they're making. Uh, right. They are ripping off the material. Well, sometimes they are. I mean, J.K. Rowling. But uh, <laughs> I, somebody just made the theory that J.K. Rowling is actually ripping off Star Wars because the same thing happens there with the two friends loving the same girl. And it turns out the Oh, my goodness. Did and <laughs> that's, that's a bit far-fetched. I know. But, but, but let's put like the, the Red... The Redwall series, for instance, does a great job ripping off very explicitly, like very, you know, copy and paste scenes from right. the Lord of the Rings. Right. And, right. and does it in a, in a clearly like fanboyish kind of way. It's charming. It's lovely. <laughs> yes. And, and so if we find out that Tolkien, for instance, is reading Dostoevsky or has Dostoevsky somewhere in there, we can assume that at least he was wrestling with the same ideas. I know Dostoevsky yeah, read Nietzsche and responded to Nietzsche over and over again. That's, that's a definite. Mm -hmm. So why yeah. wouldn't it be possible for this uh, linguist to have read Dostoevsky? So yeah. anyway, I'm reading through right now Dostoevsky's work, The Double. And uh, the main character in The Double is named Goliadkin. And I probably pronounce it wrong, but Goliadkin is how they're pronouncing it in this read-through that I'm listening to. Okay. And... Uh, Goliadkin is a, he, he is slowly becoming a schizophrenic. He's splitting into two. So he has these conversations with himself. And they're really, I mean, listening to them, it, it's like listening to Smegel Gollum. You know, it's like those, those conversations Gollum has with himself later on. Right. Like that's, that's hot. Now, is it, is it on the one hand, is it maybe just coincidental parallelism, you know, that, that schizophrenics operate this way and therefore Tolkien and, and, and uh, Dostoevsky are writing the same thing. Um, po possibly, yeah. Um, is it possible that Tolkien read the double and himself was uh, moved by it? Um, I'd have to find out whether, whether Dostoevsky was even translated by that time. I don't know. Uh, right. But one way or the other, I just... Boy, one of those things is like, dang, that's so familiar, so similar. Um, I looked and I, I went back and I looked up oh, the names of Gollum just to see what I could find on it. The threads normally, people commenting on this who are smarter than I am, were, were saying probably unlikely that this was influenced by. And the, even the Russian speakers mm -hmm. that I have uh, accessed, they said probably not. But the, um, the name... That, that that he probably got from um, for Gollum is actually from Old Norse. It's, uh, as I say here in one uh, entry, it says the Old Norse word is gull, meaning gold. And in the old okay. scripts, it's spelled G-O-L-L. -L. So one inflected form could be golem, gold treasure or something precious. Mm. And which fits then as he's the with the way he created the character, yeah, especially because because he had the name already early on before we had everything that Golem would become in the Lord of the Rings. Yep, yep. yep. It's the, the just the connection between that and the treasure, the precious thing, which yep. he called himself precious, hence Golem. And and I could further that on in the same thread because there, you know, how uh, Anglo-Saxons always did this um, kenning, and yeah, they would yep say a phrase or, or describe a thing instead of calling it by its name. And one thing that, that, that they said was uh, finger gold, finger gold, which is a ring, mm. right? So right. A, finger, a finger gold is, a, is a, a ring. Well, that kind of cements the deal that maybe he was thinking this guy is synonymous with the ring. Uh, that right. seems... Yeah. 
Um, it seems to make sense that fits the, 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 the character that was created, especially the original right. one. And one of, the, one of the commentators was saying that it also is probably a play on words to some degree, possibly, because there is a Russian word, gorlo, which is like something you make in the throat, is a sound you make in the throat, gorlo. Oh, like the word gorgle, like, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it's possible he's making that play on words. But that, again, brought me back to the idea that if he knew that word to make a play on it, how did he know Russian? Did I mean he didn't focus? Although on he it. he wouldn't need to if that because that's a common I mean that's a common Indo-European root word. True, true. yeah. Because true. we have it in English to gargle, right? Yeah, and so, so any Germanic language is going to have something that's similar to that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So it's possible that he had that connection automatically there, just you know, by accident. Mm -hmm. What I did find was interesting to me, and it kind of dispelled an idea I've had. Is that there wasn't there doesn't seem to have been a connection to the golem the the uh, the Jewish golem? Yeah, interestingly that, enough. Yeah, I had thought there was, you know, and I that's for years that's how I thought the golem character came about was through the the connection to the Jewish golem, but um, apparently not. It's not something he studied. It's not something that he intended. And also, golem has one L, which makes kind of a difference. So mm -hmm. it's probably not that. It's probably more either the finger goal itself. Or else that sound in the throat thing. And it's by chance, if chance you call it, that there's a connection with the Yiddish folklore creature, the Golan. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's more true. Insofar as the immediate author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit may not have intended it, but the greater author may have already written that into the script. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. This is often the case with good literature, right? You see inter-literary inter references unintentional on the part of either author. Yep, going for that, and that goes way back. I mean, I remember Socrates commenting on that in a couple of the mm -hmm. dialogue. Oh, yes. And so the connection to Dostoevsky might be accidental. It might be intentional. If I found out that he, that, that Dostoevsky was translated by that time and that uh, Tolkien read Dostoevsky, then there, it becomes much more possible that he was really thinking about this character. Um, the name Goliadkin means a beggar a tramp, a homeless person. Um, so mm -hmm. it, that is a possibility that he was playing on that word and that character more likely um, in, in Dostoevsky. But I'd have to find out a few things first. And uh, so far the, the deck is stacked against that possibility. But, but only if you're looking for a one-way correspondence of that it directly influenced. This, what you could be seeing though, is two things that them, the, the, the Goliadkin and Tolkien's Golem, Golem, actually, because as you said, the, the meaning of the word, they're both, it's not a cause-effect relationship one to the other. They're both effects or they're both traces of evidence of something as much deeper in our common European ancestral memory. Ah, yeah. That there's some association with those particular syllables or those yeah. particular root vocables that is golemy right and in fact one could say that's true of all three because yiddish of course is this beautiful hybrid of languages blending sure. of cultures of germanic uh, roots and 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 um hebrew and aramaic um all blending together in this tapestry where where you could have those those nuances those influences come through as well um, yeah. So I think it's quite possible, just from a linguistic anthropological, you know, uh, philological anthropological perspective. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can see that. And, and I wonder, too, if it does go back. I mean, who knows how far back these things sometimes can go. If it does go back to an Indo-European thing, I can see where that even that sound in the throat that Gala makes, that, that swallowing sound, that Tolkien might yeah. actually be describing the, uh, the original sound, the Indo-European sound that then branched off into these different realms. That is mm. a, that's a possibility. Um, who, who knows? You know, this stuff to me is always fascinating because it ends up being, you know, you don't really know some things and some things you can get more concrete handle on. Um, like, I think it was, I was finding out that at some point human beings changed the diet when they moved from being um, nomads to uh, agrarian. The diet changed mm -hmm. the palate and then we'd be able to say certain um, phonetic forms that we couldn't say before. Uh, who knows what happened that's, at some point we found something deep yeah. in you know, and this thing we gold uh, somehow was related to the human body deep in the in the earth of the human body came up yeah. and and gold in the form of words became the gold that was laid out in front of people. Now that that yeah. is in the mind of the ancient people. Again, going back to our original discussion about thinking symbolically, you know, if the human being is the earth and the words that come out of him are the treasure, and mm -hmm. you're having the same word hoard, yeah. As we riff on this idea, it, it occurs to me too, that there's another word, the, um, there's an ancient Syrophoenician word for cavern deep into a mountain. I mean, this kind of thing where, where, where he is. And there's grotto, grotto, oh, yeah, 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 which, right. is where, which is where in Italy, Italian picks this up over time, you know, not over time, but even in ancient times, the Italic language would pick up the word grotto, which is where just the word, generic word for cave, but it means the bowels of something. It was the bowels of the earth, you know. I like that. Um, Who knows? I mean, I, I, I don't yeah. know finally, but boy, is it intriguing. And what's really intriguing to me is how a guy like Tolkien would have certainly been thinking about these connections. I, he, that's why- well, the, As a philologist, I mean, he plays with these things all the time. Sure. Yeah, and then as an as a philologist, he would have, and then as an artist, he's always thinking about these ideas that then take shape in his art. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. again, this is something which is kind of hard to convey to students that I teach. <laughs> an artist doesn't just sit down and throw paint at a wall. You know, right. we are all Jackson Pollock. You know, uh, frequently an artist who's worthwhile thinks through all this stuff that he puts in and it just meticulous detail. Um, yeah. They, my, my kids were looking at a Hieronymus Bosch painting the other day. And they were just marveling that, you know, Hieronymus Bosch, who was, he was a nutball, but he would paint these little scenes that nobody would hardly ever see in the corner of one of his paintings. And he had like a guy eating yeah. a sandwich with a, another fellow inside the sandwich or something. And it's like, why, why would you go there? Yeah, sticking out. <laughs> just wow. to draw me a picture. I mean, level of detail. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, okay. So I suppose if we were to do our dude, I mean, this is great to talk about the linguistic aspect, but I suppose if we were to do our, actually talk about the chapter we're supposed to talk about. <laughs> right. Let's get into Beor. Okay. So here we are. This is uh, chapter seven and uh, queer lodgings. And I don't know, Cameron, what do you think? Maybe I'll edit this out later, but do we need to actually even go over that first word at all? In, in, the, in the title of the chapter. Do we need to make anything clear about that first word, given our current situation? In my experience, 
teaching, and I'm sure it's echoed in your own, it's probably worth bringing some clarity. Especially the what's become popular now, I guess, in certain um, circles of Tolkien commentary to, to re-read, to really isogetically read party, um, partisan uh, uh, Leninist philosophy yeah. into, into Tolkien, just as unwarranted as the early partisan, as the early communists read, tried to read fascism into it. It was just it was stupid on both counts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the word queer, it means strange, but, but not only strange, right? I mean, there's a, the, the way that Tolkien talks about the word queer is also fey. I mean, that's his mm -hmm. modern translation of the concept of fey. Mm -hmm. Could you explain that a little bit? What flesh that out? What, I, I don't have a good way of putting words to that. It's not just, but, a, you know, it's not just strange that they're in a bear's house. There's some other quality to it. The way that I've understood the word fey anyway is fey is that you are slightly in the world of the, of the elvish, slightly in the world of the magical. Um, if someone is described as fey, they're not insane, but they're, they're off kilter from what we consider to be normal, straight-laced bourgeois uh, conduct. Um, and that's they're touched in some way. They're touched in a certain way. Okay. It was a word which I think was far more familiar to people in earlier generations when we had more contact with the earth. We had more contact with the, you know, the 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 uh, fickleness of health and of the seasons. Um, now with our mm -hmm. insular worlds, we don't. I don't think we reckon with the idea that some people can be a little bit off. Not evil. Not insane. You know, they're not like going to Walmart in their, in their underwear or something. Um, but just a little... It's normal though, right? Yeah, yeah well, that's normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're just a little, a little, little, little odd. That's Faye, as far as I understand it. But, uh, but mm -hmm. Faye always had, the, that always had the connection to vision, vi uh, visionariness. Like, if you were Faye, yeah, you were a little odd but you were very worthwhile keeping in the community because it was the Fae person who had this connection to the spiritual and divine realm that could have insight and um, could lead the community when the community didn't always see clearly where it should be going. Um, one thing to consider is that ancient, ancient world people, people prior to the mechanized world, um, they didn't just believe in heaven and hell, okay? Uh, this is yeah. something, again, I find startling in our, I don't know why I do, but I find startling in a lot of people I talk to, there's heaven, there's earth, there's hell. That's it, nothing else. And so for them, things like ghosts or uh, magical creatures or um, other worldly creatures that are ambivalent towards humans, they don't exist at all. There's none of that. But yeah. people prior to the mechanized world, they held that there was another world, almost like a parallel universe to ours, that erupted into our world at certain times of the year, more than they did otherwise. So like at the equinox and at the solstice, those were times of opening up of those worlds to, uh, to our world. Uh, the, the Feast of, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but the Feast of Shaman that happened there in, uh, in the fall uh, equinox. Sovereign, yeah. Okay. In the Celtic, Celtic world, yeah. yeah. That was a, a, a prime example of this opening up this otherworldliness where the dark spirit mm -hmm. of our world. The converse was true with the Feast of Easter, of Easter, 
that occurred in the spring equinox because the the world of the bright spirits would empty into our world at that time and so you had mm -hmm. this crossover bleeding over of the two um and and people that still clung to that was seen as fools you know these april fools uh, mm. but but folks that had the 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 sense of being fey were far more aware of those oddities and odd places and nodal points on the earth where we made more contact with the other world and they were very um careful not to tread too hard on the on the graves of those those deities um, right so that's some so somebody whose fey is touched by i mean they're they 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 somehow are living in some portion then in in both worlds in this world and in the world of the otherworldly yeah right somehow they're they're living on the on the edge uh on the fringe the borderlands um of some in some way you might say or they're they're they're, they're living in both somehow they exist between both yeah and, and it's not able, because of that they, they've got a connection they're able to see they're able to hear and and thus potentially give warning of the presence of evil spirits or something that's going to happen because they're they're connected to this atemporal or outside of our world kind of stuff it's like the fire spotters today you know the people that sit around looking for tornadoes. okay Somewhat yeah like, uh they were spiritual tornadoes and spiritual fires um and they'd be aware when it was going to happen uh, sometimes they were listened to and sometimes like cassandra they were ignored to the peril of the city right. so those people were very valuable i mean even like i know that in the american indian culture it was a special rank if you will or a special role that the person who was fey fulfilled uh, and he intentionally did things backwards he rode his horse backwards and he washed with sand oh, sure outside of his tp and he painted himself a certain way so but, but he did those as rituals in order to to uh, focus on the fact that this was his job was to see the other mm -hmm. world um so anyway anyway this this word uh yeah. is a is a dynamite keg these days and unfortunately we have to wear yeah we are yeah we we have to reckon with the fact that words change meaning over time many of them do and they right. they alter they get have things attached to them either consciously or unconsciously and that's what happened right. here in its original yeah, form, no, i think that's well sorry let me just finish the idea but in, in, in its original form this word meant more like um th things things juxtaposed to each other so if if mm. you were if you were queer or queer you were at a at, at a at an angle to something else you were you're cross to it or oblique to it um you you weren't okay. you weren't you weren't true okay so true was always not opposed to but true was always in relationship to queer okay so queer and true were the were the two modes of of living so to speak or the modes of construction true meant right you were in line okay. okay we we have problems with truth these days too so it's no doubt that we would have problems with queer true meant you were in, in line with whatever you were trying to create or whatever was was trying to be uh, built choir meant yeah. or queer meant that you were oblique yeah. whatever was trying to be built a little okay. off kilter a little off kilter right exactly right so <sighs> Here we're talking queer in the sense of this is off kilter. Something's off. Something's odd. Um, it's it's like that moment where, you, you know, you, you suddenly see your breath where it's a ninety degree day and suddenly you see your breath and you know there's a ghost somewhere. Or the, the hairs on your 
arm to stand up and something's about to happen. You get that spooky music. Dun, 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 it's dun, a queer dun. feeling. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. How it got appropriated and why it got appropriated and why it got used in the way it does now, it gets used in the way it does now. That's a different, that's a different story and a long one. I don't know if we need to go into detail about it. No, I think um, we would get lost in philology land again, but yeah. queer lodgings in this he, case. Yeah. Odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah something odd. Odd, lot Odd no. and somewhat otherworldly. And the question would be then, in what way are they odd? Because we have two sections here, but we have the section of the Eagles, which is a shorter section, and the section of Bayorn. Right. Because well, set, set that aside. Set Bayorn aside for a minute. How are the Eagles yeah, yeah. odd? How are they strange? How are they fey? What is, what, is, right. what is queer about that? That's interesting. What, what do you so think? That's, see, I, th I like that. So we've got two, two, two lodgings, two lodgingses, hob like hobbitses, right? Lodgingses <laughs> uh, in, this, in the chapter is with the eagles right. on this. I mean, really is. It's alleged. It's off kilter. It literally is queer in the original sense of the word. Mm -hmm. they're, they're sort of torqued off the side of the mountain. Um, and Bilbo is a rabbit. He's, right? He's repeatedly, we're, we're repeatedly reminded he's rabbit-ish. Yes. In the clutches of an eagle, except he, instead of in the clutches of the eagle, everything's queer. He's riding on the back of the eagle. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting up there and they're eating up there where no hobbit, because hobbits you know, don't like to live above ground. They live on the, gr on the ground floor if they have, you know, even right. if they have an upper floor, they still sleep on the ground floor. They're, they're ground dwellers, like rabbits. But here's one up in the air, a pinned to the edge of, you know, off the yeah. edge of a cliff. That sounds so he, pretty queer. So he's out of his element. And for him, yeah. For his perspective, this is strange. It's odd. It's like he is the bacon in the frying pan. Uh, right, except oddly been put back in the cupboard, <laughs> as he says, right? That's right. Yeah, right. And he wakes up at the very beginning of this. He wakes up and he, he has this vision of the domestic realm that he longed for, longs for at the beginning of the book. Uh, here's yeah. the line. It says, he sat down and wished in vain for a wash and a brush. He did not get either, nor tea, nor toast, nor bacon for his breakfast, only cold mm -hmm. mutton and rabbit. And after that, he had to get ready for a fresh start. Okay, so he longs for that domestic realm where he could wake up and go down to the icebox, as my English friend says, not refrigerator, right? Side note, no. Americans have refrigerators, Europeans have iceboxes. Uh, refrigerator stores a ton of food. The icebox stores a few things. But he'd go down to the icebox and he would get out, you know, the cold mutton and the bacon and whatever it was and have a nice breakfast. He wakes up, it's not there. There's none of that there. So he's out of his element already. And um, right. then, you know, he's picked up by the eagle and put on the back of the eagle. And that's strange. And then the eagles talk. And that's strange. Um, and they, they even have this little uh, tete-a-tete -tete with, um, with Gandalf after they drop him off at, at right. the top of the rock. So yeah, it's the whole thing is a little it's a little strange, a little off. Especially when you this other thing too that just struck me here is that the 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 eagles are and this is again why you don't ride the eagles into Mordor mm. is the eagles are are they're divine like they belong to Zeus right they're the they're God and 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 that's made explicit in the Silmarillion they are the creatures of 
is it man manway i think I, I, one of these right that the chief uh, guy um uh, chief of the valar and and so that like it's very strange that they should be playing pony for for this troop of fools who don't belong anywhere here they're totally out of their element yeah. and so there's a sense of divine intervention but it's also this things are kind of backwards about it things are upside down yeah uh, in a sort of way yes and the, and the divine element is very obvious in the way that the eagles speak you know the the, the eagles they're majestic the majestic and they speak in a, in a yeah. very elevated way and there's even a line in here where the eagle says to bilbo uh you know it's a crystal clear day what, what, what would be better than flying like this is this is what we do we fly <laughs> right and, and for him you know i get a vision of some guy standing on the prow of the ship with the wind blowing in his hair you know this is what we this is what we do this is this heroic thing that we do all the time how could why would you yeah. complain what, what more would there be for anybody um right. it's a uh, for a guy who is earthbound travel on the sea is a nightmare right because it's you know it's mm -hmm. the open terrifying for a mariner travel on the sea is like that's delightful that's the thing you do and you learn how to be a mariner and you learn how to navigate the waters same mm -hmm. thing with the air the third element for people on the ground the air is normally a place you don't go but for the, right. in the who fly it's that's a realm of beauty and, and majesty and they love being up there oh it's something to consider i just thought of this if he's writing this too in the 1930s there was no real commercial jetliner system at the time in no, fact right. airplanes were still relatively young so and, yeah. and ballooning, ballooning had started in the 1800s i think but it, even that was relatively young so human beings didn't go up in the air at, at all it so was very strange to do so. Very strange to do so. So, and even now, for us, it, you know, it's it's more tedium than anything because it's all the checkpoints and having to get through. The, the and top. you're in this giant tin thing. You're not in the open air. You're not even like those old bi the early biplanes. You know, where your yeah. face. You got to have those goggles because your face is. You know, you're just getting. You're out there. Yeah, it's highly unsexy. Yeah. These days. It's like you know, you just do it because you have to do it. But at the time. Yeah. It would have been this almost impossible thing for the common guy and it would have been something where if you did it would be really kind of thrilling uh but it would be odd it'd be strange it'd be an experience which you would do maybe once or twice in your lifetime at the most and and it would uh, mm -hmm. it would change your perspective um yeah i remember seeing some of those early photographs that were done during the war from an airplane and how they totally changed the way that they did battle the way they saw the landscape and this had already been starting with the ballooning we don't mm -hmm. we granted because now we have satellites and airplanes and all this jazz at mm -hmm. the time maps were made by people on the ground and when the balloons went up in the early 1800s and then when the airplanes went up the detail you could get through photography and through that aerial perspective changed the way we saw the earth like like the photographs of the earth from the moon there was a similar change people had never thought that the earth looked the way that it actually looked and so it really altered how we behaved as a culture i i think yeah. that for the uh the experience of being up there in the air with the eagles and on the cliff with the eagles it is a queer moment it is a fey moment you are a liminal uh you are and the that um that realm as you said the borderlands between heaven and, and earth and you're experiencing right. 
things before, but it changes. Okay. You know, no longer can you go back to your hobbit hole and talk about dirt with the other hobbits. That's just, you've been you've been in the heavens. You've been in the lower heavens. Yeah, right. Yeah, you've been in the. Sure, we could talk about dirt, but I know something more than dirt. You know, I've been there. And I've seen it. So I think it's it's transformative experience for him to have been lifted up first off by the eagles last time, but then in this chapter, just to have that experience of talking with them and seeing how they live, how what could be finer than flying. Um, and of course, as you, as you as you've mentioned, to get an experience, a first-hand experience of that divine nature, which the eagles represent, like the, like the eagle on the top of Yggdrasil, like climbing up Yggdrasil and talking to the eagle up there at the top. Right. And then running down like Ratatosk back down to your, your own realm. Um, right. Like, so, so yeah, so, so I can see now that realm I can see as odd, as fey, as queer. We go to the other realm, which is the realm of, of Bayorn, and he's not an earth spirit, but he's more earthy than the eagles, right? Right. Um, my son, but he's a wild, he's a wild man. Yeah, he's a wild man. Yeah, yeah. A solitary wild man. Right. My son out that there's a difference between uh, lycanthropy and, and werewolves. We had an mm -hmm. interesting discussion about that the other night. That, and I don't know if it's a legitimate distinction or not, but werewolves are at the mercy of the moon. They cannot hit a curse. They can't help but change. Lycanthropes are skin changers, are people that can change back and forth from wolf to man when they wish, when they want to. So Bayon is more of this guy, as we find out during the course of this section. He, he he's is, under no enchantment but his own. His, his yeah, enchantment but his own, exactly. And in order to enter into that section, because we don't find out immediately that that's what he is, in order yeah. to enter that, we have a scene which is really, I think you mentioned this before, it's a reboot of chapter one, right? Yes. So here we have the solitary man living in his beautiful house surrounded by flowers, and mm -hmm. that's right. Is invaded by dwarves and a wizard and a hobbit. Right. But this time they're invaded in a different way because Gandalf has apparently learned his lesson, so he hasn't come in two by two, telling right. us to draw him in, which is a wonderful image of how art works, right? Right. But they get into this this uh, discussion with Bayorn, and Bayorn invites them all into his house, and he's he's. Uh, He's very skeptical that this is real, that they're actually what they say they are. Mm -hmm. But they come in and, they, and then you know, he entertains them and then he goes out and, and this is, he goes out to check their story. And this is, passage here has always startled me because even when I was a kid, for, you know, and, and I read about this, <laughs> this was one which kind of spooked me. It was odd, it was queer. Bilbo is at night hearing scufflings around the lodge and uh, he wakes in the morning and he finds his, um, he finds a wolf skin that has been hung up and the head of a goblin on a post. And to me, it's kind of spooky. But then Bayon comes out and he slaps him on the back and says, you know, this is, uh, we're all good. We're all friends now. Um, because he checked out their story. And it always struck me as strange and and peculiar and a little terrifying because this is the point where you realize that the the world of the fae the world of um the otherworldly liminal realm is not always sweet and nice and cute sometimes it's a really dangerous right. 
dangerous characters. Like this guy, Bayorn, right? He is not a nice mm -hmm. guy. Um, he he's just happens not to... safe. He's not safe, no. Yeah. He is he is one that uh that when he's your friend it's good and when he's not your friend it's terrifying. It's like what's that movie, The Revenant? You know, or, right. um, that's not a nice bear. That's not a big and strong, yeah. you know. Did you ever see the movie Grizzly no Man? No gentle Ben. No. What was no. that? Did you ever see the movie Grizzly Man? Grizzly Man, no. The old Grizzly <laughs> Adams show, I know. I grew up with Grizzly Adams. That was nice. Yeah. He had a big I always wanted to be that. That sounded, that seemed like a good life to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grizzly Man was about a guy who really was crazy. It was a Werner Herzog movie, and this guy goes out to oh, live. Okay. Oh, live. weird. He goes out to live with grizzly bears because okay. he thinks them, and it turns out he's wrong. And uh, it's a uh, it's a documentary movie. I am assuming uh -huh. a documentary like Zasho footage. But this poor guy, he just he did not. He was fey. You know that was a that was a guy who was definitely fey, and he uh, had he just didn't fit into society at all. But he thought he could go out and commune with bears. And he would go out and he would actually get two or three feet away from these grizzlies within slap. He actually slaps one on the nose once. And it's terrifying to watch because, you know, this guy is, and he's going to die. And then he does, mm -hmm. you know, not to right. give away. <laughs> Surprise. Surprise. Slap the grizzly on the nose and somebody does. <laughs> but it's such a reminder that the, that the world of nature, we think we've tamed it. And, mm -hmm. and we, there's no point where we can say, oh, we've conquered nature because there's, Nature is always going to be a little bit risky, and the realm of Fey is always going to be a little bit dangerous. Uh, yeah, I think Tolkien is tapping into that in this in this this image of Bayorn. Yeah. Right, and at the same it's time, at the same time, it's also the most fairy taleish point of the fairy tale we're reading. If I can put put it that way, yeah, don't you think that's right? Yeah, I mean, he's he's the they they come in the whole household is a. Is a, is wild. I mean, not only is it you know this sort of Nordic log hall, you know the the way that it's laid out, very charming. Oh. Um, but but the 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 company comes in and they're they're waited upon by sheep and dogs, ewes and rams, and so these creatures imbued with these the livestock creatures of all things imbued with sentient life uh, they don't communicate it doesn't seem to communicate with with the the hobbit or the dwarves Gandalf, but they know their task and they but they otherwise behave like i mean in the same way you wouldn't necessarily expect servants to communicate with the guests um uh, you know in a certain way but they they come in they know their task and they do it and they're 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 the servants but they're animals yes this is this is thoroughly strange it reminds me of that image out of the story of Baba Yaga, where Vasilisa goes to get the fire from Baba Yaga, and the hands come out of nowhere, and these pairs of hands are serving them. And Baba Yaga says, "You're right not to ask me where the hands come from." Mm -hmm. Baba Yaga says, "She's a spirit of the forest. She's a witch of the forest, and, and, mm -hmm. and something <laughs> world of the yeah, fig." Yeah, right. There's something you better not ask about. It's, it's much best not to ask. <laughs> right, like what's in the haggis? Just it's just you're right not to ask. <laughs> <Just eat it. laughs> that haggis is actually very good. Uh, 
but yeah, it's that scene of those animals coming out again. It's very, it's fairy story like. It's it's like um, the images of uh, that you see of uh, Snow White and all of her little animal buddies uh, cleaning up the the cottage and all. Right. In fact, the image of Bayorn ties back to certain fairy tales that I remember from reading as a kid. Um, there was one called uh, Snow White and Rose Red. Um, yes, that's right. Where there's a dwarf that gets his beard stuck in a, in a log, and the girls yeah. try to help him. They cut off his beard, he gets all mad. And then he tries to hurt them, but the bear comes out of nowhere and smacks him around, smacks the dwarf around, kills him. Yeah, the bear totem is a powerful... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's kind of like the, that image. The bear ends up being a prince that had a curse on him, and right. he changes into a bear. Uh, and in, and I think the story actually is connected to another one where she, it's like a, a Cupid and Psyche story, where she marries the prince, but then she has to, she yes. fires into his life and he's cursed to stay as a bear and she has to go find him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very Cupid and Psyche image that goes on in that story. Yeah, that's, and that one, in fact, is in the Blue Fairy book by right. Andrew uh, Lawton, yes. Yeah, and and was with of course which with which Tolkien was very very familiar. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. enough to praise and critique, uh, like yep. on yep. those points. There's another yeah. one I found, which it's the let's see here. It's called the White Bear King Valamon. Okay, mm -hmm. and it's kind of a version of Snow White and Rose Red, but mm -hmm. it's another story where the bear is a white bear. And he is a prince that's cursed to be a white bear. And her love for him eventually breaks the spell. And there's more to it, of course, than that. But it's, um, yeah. it's one of those Dan Danish stories, uh, Norwegian mm -hmm. stories. So it would have been in that realm that Tolkien was familiar with and loved and, and studying. Right. Um, there's an interesting point I found that the name itself of Bayorn is not his first choice, though. Tolkien originally really? wanted to name this character Medved, which Medved. is Russian. Honey. Russian. Well, it is. It is honey, but it's also Russian for bear because the bear okay. seeks. So the two were. Honey were, eater. Honey eater, right. The Medved, exactly. Yeah. And so um, he was going to name this character Medved, like Michael Medved, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But he named him Bayorn instead because Bayorn is Norwegian and Medved is Russian. So he's, he changed his mind. But in the early drafts, it's Medved, which kind of gives, you know, kind of gives a kick to our earlier conversation. Did he know Russian? To the familiarity of Slavic literature and folklore. Yeah. I don't know. Which, with, 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 of course, you know, the, which the, um, the bear features prominently as well. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting because... So, so Medved, which of course means uh, honey eater, which is yeah. a kenning for bear, uh, but Beorn, what is it? Um, in, in Tolkien's version, okay, so I'll go deep for a second here. Tolkien's mm -hmm. translation of Beowulf, he, he translates Beowulf. And not only does he translate Beowulf, which is the best translation of Beowulf that I've found, mm -hmm. uh, that I'm aware of, I should say. I can't claim to have found it, right? You know, but that I'm aware <laughs> He also, and many people are not aware of the fact that Tolkien then, as a good, fun-loving philologist would want to do, goes to try and recreate the proto-story that would have, ex that what was the original fairy tale fable that existed 
that was the raw material that evolved over centuries into Beowulf. Yeah. And so he recreates his story and he names, uh, and he has his Beowulf, his original Beowulf is, and so, and, and as I under, if I understand it right, he essentially, he recreated a, a projected and invented possible original backstory in Anglo-Saxon, in Old English, and then translated it into modern English. Uh, so he mm. like goes through the whole sort of exercise and the whole process. And his original Beowulf, he gives the etymology within the story then of Beowulf. He was raised by bears, and the canning for bears in this context is Beowulf. Wolf in this case meaning broadly a wild, savage animal. Yeah. That of course eats the you know is is with the beehives bee wolf and so there's pos- so there's plausible then that Bjorn Bjorn is in fact then some like, some version or variant of that as well. I like that. No, I I like that very much. You know, the story about bee wolf is a wonderful story. I think I first heard that at the uh, History of the English Language podcast. But that that mm-hmm. that hunter for bees, which is actually a hunter for honey. As a kenning for mm-hmm. bear, it works so well. It works so well. Yeah. Uh, and 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 to have Bjorn be a version of that, that works really well too. Um, yeah. You know, you can speak better to this than I can. But as a, somebody who knows different languages, uh, you see connections between these words, and these the, the, you know you start to realize that these cultures that that we have distinguished that these are Swedes, these are Russians, these are French, they have words that come down over the generations that actually are the same word in different forms, right? Mm-hmm. And so Tolkien, who would have been doing the same thing and studying all these languages, would have said, well, you know, what are we going to name the guy? You know, we name him according to the idiom we want. Do we want the Russian idiom? Do we want the right. North? Um, but one way or the other, he's he ends up naming the guy in such a way that he's he's a bear, sure, but he's also connected to all these other things: the Beowulf and the Medved and the, you know, the skin changer, yeah. all packed into that image. That's really great. That's really great. What do you make of the What do you make of the um, connection though between Bilbo and Bayorn? You know, because I think it's a, it's a really good one, but it's yeah. not the and. Uh, Hobbit. It's the big man, the big bear man. It's not the little rabbit man. Who's? It's not the. It's not Bilbo the bourgeois bunny dragon living yeah. in his horde. And there's nothing dragonish about Bjorn per se, except of course that he's, he's dangerous. But that's the you know that that's it. It's a similarity, but it's not like a connection. Um, but we've got so instead of a, a small diminutive figure who's content with his bourgeois life. You've got Grizzly Adams, this, you know, this wild man. You've got, I mean, you've got the wild man. You've got the green man, the man of the forest, the, the wild yeah. creature man thing, who is fey in and of himself insofar as he is, he is both man and fairy. Uh, insofar yeah. as he's this, got this enchantment, this dual nature. Um, huh. And, and he's, sur- he li- he's lived surrounded by animals. So we have a sense of, like that's his... There's this deeper connect. He's got a more familiar connection with the beasts of the forest oh, yes. and the beasts of the field, right? They're the ones he communes with. The, this is his tribe. These are his people. Yeah. Uh, and so he's more animal than man in that way. And we've got this very, and we're cued off to the comparison between the two. We've got this interesting juxtaposition. When we see him, we're given a physical description. He's, he's got sinewy muscles, right? He's wearing this 
low cut or not a low cut, whatever you say, like a, a tunic that goes just to mid thigh kind of thing. And, and then we're sure that he's, he's so huge that Bilbo could have passed between his legs without bothering to duck to avoid the fringes of his tunic. Wow. Right. So this guy's big, but that visual image Tolkien gives us, we picture the two, the one is the, this, as this, uh, the one is the macro man, right? The big, you know, uh, Beorn is the big one. And then we see the homunculus Bilbo sort of standing mm. beneath his loins. Mm-hmm. And that there's a, there's a generative connect, there's a connection on multiple levels, both in terms of generation, both in terms of being an inter- the inner man and the outer man, the old man, the new man, the, the tame, the, like the, the, the epitome of the tame man, Bilbo the bourgeois bunny, and the epitome of the wild man. So there's a juxtaposition, the one superimposed upon the other. Ah. Only as a visual image that's given us. It's a beautiful, like, artistic, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful spell that Tolkien does in this as, as the author, the literary device, to have us picture that without that actually happening in the scene. So, right. so, so in some ways, so in some ways um, Bilbo, in this instance, becomes the child looking up to the grown man that he needs to become himself. Right, there's the, you need to become more wild. And the wild man isn't just the regular wild man who lives in the forest. He also has this really well-appointed aristocratic domesticity. But it's aristocratic mm-hmm. domesticity. Mm-hmm. It's not the comfortable bourgeois life that Bilbo has in the hill, but it's this aristocratic great hall, the great kings of old, you know, and we should immediately feel a connection to Heorot in the way that this hall is yep. know, laid out for us. And, and because then the servants come in and wait and, and wait upon them, the, the servants, the lamb, the sheep that come in, the dogs that come in, so these different ranks of servants, the servants and the footmen, if you will, that mm. kind of thing. You know, they come in from the kitchen, the kitchen that we're not told about, right? Like that's, there's this upstairs, downstairs, like they're over there and this is where we are. But they come in and they serve all this food and we're, we're talking, we even hear about the, of course, this is all, the whole frame, the, the meta frame for the whole story is, of course, that this comes from Bilbo's own recounting later on, right? That's, yeah. and, and so meticulous attention to the food and the cutlery. Mm. You know, we're told about the plates, the bowls, the knives, the forks, everything. no metal, right? Nothing made of metal. It's all wood. Yes. Which you know, is wood the way. Na- na- it, these more natural materials. Yeah. And people in the medieval age would have eaten with that anyway, unless they were royalty. But mm-hmm. it, oh, as a kid, I, I never thought about uh, some of the details that you think about as an adult, I was always mm-hmm. amazed at deer, especially carrying plates. I thought that was so cool. Uh, it yeah. reminded me of Christmas, you know, Christmas uh, imagery that we have. We have these uh, animals that with the, like candelabra on their backs, you know. And yeah. That's, uh, so cool, these brass things. As an adult, of course, you could ask the question, you know, who's making all the food? I mean, is there like a monkey back there with opposable thumbs? <laughs> that's right. Like, but yeah. then, and you run up to Tolkien's response again, which is basically just shut up. <laughs> you're, you're right not to ask where the food comes that's from. Where that came from. It's a non-question. <laughs> you know, but you're right. Because, because it's fairy. You don't yeah. ask. where yeah. When the fairy queen comes out of the cottage and serves you, you don't ask where she got that. That's, that's, that would be just ultimately bad form. Right? Yes. You're bad just form. grateful for it. Yep. And it breaks the spell. And it exactly. makes it makes you Oof, in, they disappear. In, yeah, incapable of receiving the silver star in the middle of the cake. To use the example exactly. at the Wooten Major and his other story. Yeah. 
um, the person who is always trying to um, look for the mechanical answer to things is going to miss the, if I can mix my metaphors, miss the grail when it's right in front of him. He's not going to Oh, And uh, that's what this is like. This is like the grail procession that Percival sees. Yeah. The banquet's there. And yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not that, but there's elements that, Oh, there's a familiarity there to this. In the same way that the Grail procession is, an, is a moment when the fey world, the queer world, bursts through into our world. And we have that moment of Esther, which is a resurrection image, or the moment yeah. of Chavin, which is a, a, a descent into Hades image. Uh, we have that moment where we suddenly realize there's a lot more to this universe than is conceived of in our philosophy. That's right, uh, right. That, uh, that, that image of those creatures coming out too, it, it reminds me of, like I said, Christmas, when we, when we parade out all these beautiful things and all these mysteries and we talk about things like, you know, elves, jolly old elves wow. coming from these and impossible things. Yeah. Why, why not rejoice in that? Why not just enjoy that? Why not just have the, have the good food? Why does one have to ask the question of, uh, how does a fat man get down your chimney? You know, right. <laughs> how do the deer make the bread? You know, yeah. that's, that's a stupid question. That's a stupid question. Don't ask that. Don't yeah. ask that. And, and actually, that's interesting you point out again. So, the, just putting things together, the wild man and the bank and the Christmasiness of it that you're. You're, you're, you're making that connection here. There's another Christmas banquet where a jolly old elf comes in and he's all green and he challenges <laughs> someone to, you know, anybody to a battle, right? This is the uh, <laughs> Gavin and the Green Knight, right? That So, you know, all of this is kind of packed into the cultural, you know, memory and the associations. It, it's one of those kinds of things, right? We're not saying this is that, this is the other thing, but it's of that order, right? Right. Now, I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to speculate here for a minute. This is something I've not researched a lot about, but I'm wondering whether Tolkien isn't thinking in the back of his mind something that uh, William Butler Yeats writes about in a poem called The Circus Animals, I think. I don't remember the poem very as okay. well as I But in that poem, he talks about how the circus animals break free and he can't, he can't control them. And what he's getting at is he's getting at the attempt to make drama work and therefore the attempt to make words on the stage. Mm. The point being right. is drama is a form of magic and it's you are presenting an image there to people and moving them so that they are moved to tears or fear or laughter but it's all yeah. fakery right it's not real in the same right. way in the same way words are also that way when you look at a word on a page like i'm looking at any word here horses right the words right. on the page is just a collection of pixels or ink it's just shapes on a page Yep, the, the shapes on the page constitute what we call letters. They represent sounds. The, uh, the, the, the sounds put together represent a single sound that is <clears throat> representative of an idea or an object. And if we delve too deeply behind that curtain, if we delve too deeply behind trying to find the, 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 the reality there, we actually miss the point that we're talking about something which has four legs and rides across the plane and you can ride it. You know, when I say horse, if I say that there's nothing there, there, it's just a word. We end up right. in a universe like Hamlet does, where he says, yeah. I'm studying words, 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 but there's nothing behind it. And it's just, that's a, that is another form of madness. You know, talk about madness. It's another form of madness where you have tried to get to the kernel of things in the wrong way. You've asked the wrong question. And so you right. end up 
digging and digging and digging until you get to a molecular level, a subatomic level. And at that subatomic level, you find that no particle is actually connected to any other particle. And so really matter shouldn't hold together at all. But if you've been looking in that direction, you've missed the point because the point is that there's your child right in front of you, or there's your, your beloved right in front of you, or there's your garden right in front of you. It's not, you're not looking for molecules when you're leaning in for a kiss, you know? <laughs> right. It's not like you're, you, you, you need to pull the, you, you don't need to dissect the dove in order to find out what the truth of that bird is. Because when you right. do, you have a pile of guts, you don't have the dove itself anymore. Um, yeah. So, well, that's, so, so I guess that's what, what makes it magic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go, keep, keep going. You're on a. And here is it, it's queer in the sense that you don't know the origin of the thing, and it has all those connections to the Fey world. And Bilbo yeah. is is in a way wanting to ask certain questions, but Gandalf even stops him at some point. Right, he stops him from from taking a certain route uh, intellectually. He says, really? no, "No, that's not what you should be asking." Don't. If you, which is again like Percival, right? Like, don't like, ask, don't look like, a, don't reveal the idiot that you are, you know, and, and don't anger the bear. Don't poke the bear. Don't. Poke. <laughs> I'm a bad boy. Um, <laughs> if, for instance, you ask certain questions. You have to find the right questions to ask. You yes. don't. Ask you know, takes the bread back in the kitchen. You know, you don't ask the question of where the hands come from Baba Yaga. You don't ask the question of what makes the grail procession work because that's the wrong question. Question. You end up, you end up a little bit insane then. You end up like um, the Monty Python foolery, you know, where right. they, they, they yeah. deal with, uh, literally they deal with these things uh, in the Holy Grail. Yeah. Uh, Here's the passage, if I can. Here's the passage. Yeah, Gandalf yeah, stops yeah, And he says, uh, Gandalf is trying to explain what is happening with Bayorn. And it says, um, is that the person you are talking to us now? You're ta taking us to now, they said. Couldn't you find someone more easy-tempered? Hadn't you better explain it all a bit clearer, they say, and so on. Yes, and certainly is. No, I could not. And I was explaining very carefully, answered the wizard crossly. If you must know more, his name is Bayorn. He is very strong, and he is a skin changer. And Bilbo gets scared, right? Because a skin changer means something for him. What? A furrier, a man that calls rabbits conies when he doesn't turn their skins into squirrels? Asked Bilbo. <laughs> is he that kind of guy that like, takes the skin off creatures like rabbits? Because, you know, I'm kind of like a rabbit. And then taxidermist, right? A taxidermist. And Gandalf says, good gracious heavens, no, 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 don't be a fool, right, if you can help it. The name if of you all, can help it. And in the name of all wonder, don't mention the word furrier again as long as you're within 100 miles of his house, nor rug, cape, tippet, muff, or any other such unfortunate word. He's a skin changer, he changes his skin. Sometimes he is a huge black bear, sometimes he's a great strong black-haired man with huge arms and a great beard. I can't tell you much more than that. Right? And I love that Gandalf, who knows what he is, says, you're asking the wrong question. Don't ask your question out of fear. Don't ask your question in a mechanical way, because that's not what we're talking about. And don't mention those words. That's wonderful. The forbidden words. Yeah, forbidden words. That's wonderful. Yeah. It really is. Because that's, that's 
the essence of the magic we're talking about in literature and drama. You know, the guy who's in the middle of the play and says, uh, you know, that's not possible. Well, you've missed the, the point in, in, the, in the play. You've, you have not uh, sus willfully suspended disbelief, as Coleridge talked yeah. about. Yeah. Well, you or mechanical answer. As Tolkien, and this is, you know, Tolkien's whole point in, well, one of his points in on fairy stories is precisely this, the ability to enter into, enter into a secondary world, which doesn't require the suspension of, of belief, but rather able to believe in a secondary sense to become enchanted. Yeah. Yeah, to become enchanted yourself. You have to mm -hmm. dance with, you have to dance with the fey folk. Yeah, rather exactly. Than, hey, where are you going after this? You gonna hang out at a bar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and and in any work of art or in any uh, piece of music, you kind of have to enter into that mentality, right? You have to enter into it and mm -hmm. say, okay, I'll give this uh, a, a try. I'm not going to say, um, well, it's just air blowing through a tube when I'm listening to Gabrielli or Handel or whatever. Just air right. blowing through a tube. Because then you lose it. It's it's yeah. completely gone. Um, I was I was always struck by the idea of Orpheus in the ancient world, where he goes to um, to oh, save Eurydice yeah. out of the underworld. Now, what does that whole myth mean? And I think it really is an example of artwork itself. It's a artwork is a re. Membering that is, it takes the members that are 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 split apart and it reconstitutes them, brings them yeah. back together. So when, like Tolkien, he takes different pieces from Norse and from Slavic and from uh, uh, French art, English art, and he pulls them together into something new. He remembers them, and in our mm -hmm. talk and thinking about these things, we are remembering that these have connections much deeper than Tolkien. Right. The trick Orpheus is that Orpheus makes that mistake at the end. He turns around to try and confirm with his eyes that what he is yeah. doing is... And what happens? She's gone, right? Eurydice disappears. Yeah. And it's sad and melancholy, but it's, um, it's a really great uh, cautionary tale. Yeah. And actually, the, the old English version of this story which Tolkien also translated, um, makes it highlights that dismembering and remembering part uh, much more strongly. If I if I recall correctly, it actually includes elements of somebody being chopped to pieces. Yes. Um, yes. And, and that, or fail. for those who are interested, that that's it's that and his translation of Beowulf and a few other things are bound together in a copy that's available. I don't know, you know, what what the official title is, but it's. It's got. It's in those stories there. I mean, that image of remembering goes further back than Orpheus, of course, because Osiris oh, yeah. was right. You know, um, when Isis uh, and Osiris are married, and Osiris gets torn apart by his brother uh, Seth. I want to say Seth, and mm -hmm. his pieces get scattered, and Isis draws them back together and puts them back together and wraps them up in linen cloth, and he reconstitutes. And then he rises again to become the god Ra, the, the sun god, the solar deity. Uh, so it, it's a remembering there. But again, I think it, I think even that is an example of of artwork. The the image of the Isis and Osiris story is really getting at the it's getting at the heart of what a human being 
does. <laughs> and and this yeah. is a, right now, Cameron. So it's at the heart of what a human being does. We we are not creatures that, that are here to make money. We are not creatures that are here to make buildings. We are not creatures that are here to make war against each other. What humans do, different from any other animal, is that we remember our past and our, our beloveds and our fallen ones through the nature of art, through the vehicle yeah. of artwork. We remember those things that otherwise are forgotten. That otherwise we bring them together. Right. Yeah. Right. And so Tolkien is in this, and, and, and it's, it's not accidental that we have just gone through a death and rebirth chapter. Exactly. Okay, when, when Bilbo goes down into Gollum's realm, he dies. Okay, mm -hmm. that, I mean, not literally, obviously, but it's, that's a metaphor for death. He goes down into the dark. He meets his other self in a hell-like situation. He gets uh, mm -hmm. out again, back into the light. He's carried up from almost near death in the fire, uh, uh, like uh, being purged in the fire or something. And he's mm -hmm. brought high by the eagles, by the angels. Up into the mountain, yeah. Yeah. And that is itself a resurrection image. Mm -hmm. And and they cross the waters. They they then there's a baptism as they descend from the Karak, pass through the waters to arrive then ultimately at the origin. Yeah, why that's a that's an interesting point. If I could just touch on it for a minute. Why do the Eagles drop him off there? Why don't they just take him to the don't say shut up like the way Tolkien would. Uh, why <laughs> do they take him to directly? You know, why do they drop him off at the Karak? Exactly, because it's, they, you know, we're given very clear parameters, the, the, the eagle, Gwai here gives Gandalf very clear parameters of where we will not go right near the habitations of men, where they would shoot yeah. us with their longbows for fear that we're yeah. stealing their, rab their, their sheep, which is yeah. true. Um, but there's no reason why they couldn't take them to Beorn's house. I mean, they're animals, it's the animal play, like it would, it would be okay. But you're right, they drop them off on the Karrok, they drop them off on the big rock thing, a craig. And then so we get this sort of, you know, ancient world etymology of the, uh, the, the Gaelic word as well from, from Beorn, the protogenitor of the North people. Um, yeah. Why do they drop them off on a rock? I mean, and it's, a, it's not just a rock. It's a rock that juts, that, that rises up from flowing waters, yeah. right? Such that you, yeah. in order to leave the rock, you have to pass through the waters. Yeah. I think that's what we're dealing with there. It's not, and this is the same reason why Tolkien told people asking about the eagles, told them to shut up. Mm -hmm. the, we're asking was a mechanical question. They're not asking an artistic symbolic question because the question right. to ask is not, why couldn't the eagles fly 10 feet further, 10 yards further and drop them off at Bayon's house? The question is, what symbolic meaning is it that they drop them off at the Karak? Uh, the, 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 the moving through water, it's a baptism image. You know, it's like the crossing of Beowulf of the waters in order to get to, uh, to um, Herald. The Karak itself is like that that Mount Ararat after the flood. Yeah, it's a it's a high high place that is above the flood that symbolizes the death of the old life, and they yeah. drop them there and they give them a blessing and they fly away and then they have to make their way to Beyond's house in this resurrection rebooting of the original uh, chapter, right? Which is interesting because if we know something of Shire geography, the dwarves themselves had to cross at least over the water to get to Bilbo's house in the first place. So there's this crossing of waters, again, like the Grail story, with the crossing of waters to arrive at these major transition points. I'll take you one step further, which I'm sure you're familiar with this. 
the Shire itself is located on basically it's a peninsula, if you will, of the, on the west. It's not peninsula, but it's jutting out further than where most of the civilizations were, which is west mm -hmm. of the Misty Mountains. Before a certain point in the history of the Middle Earth, that would have been deep inland because right. there's a huge section of land that was inundated with a flood after the fall of, of Numenor. Mm -hmm. So really the Shire itself is kind of a Karak into the waters of the original yeah. and flood <laughs> late earth history. Right. So yeah. did Tolkien think all that out when he wrote this the first time? I don't know if he did. He probably did it. But was I don't it know if that far? But he'd probably agree. Yeah. And, and was it there in the back of his imagination? I think absolutely. I think he was already yeah. that image of death and resurrection and the waters being the baptismal waters that send you into the underworld. Um, I think he's already thinking through all that stuff. Um, yeah. And so they had to land on the Karak because they had to pass through the waters because you've got yeah. this initiation that has to happen. You're, you're, you're leveling up. You're going further along. You're about to really enter the wild now. Yes. Yes. And, and you're going to experience an image of what, for Bilbo, going to enter into an experience of the image of what you should become, which is this man, this wild man, this independent right. man, powerful, and, and changes his skin. Uh, exactly. That whole uh, that connection to the berserkers, for instance, is obviously there, the berserker thing in the Norse mythology. But the connection mm -hmm. also to somebody who at will can change into something powerful is also yeah. there. Yeah. We, we use the phrase even now, change your skin, which means to, to change your life, to alter yourself, to make yourself better, to um, uh, 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 move away from a life that is destroying you to a life that can actually help you. And that's changing your mm -hmm. skin. We also use the term change your skin as in somebody who is capable of doing something unusual to their normal self. You know, if you're yeah. normally seen to be sort of an average person, but then you were just like a, a behemoth when you were out on the football field or you're you know, on the rugby field or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's changing your yeah. skin. And, and Bilbo really has to start doing that or learn how to do that if he is going to become more than he was before. Right. If he's going to become the dragon. Um, it's something which the magic of this story it, it's, it's so powerful as a story because it really speaks to what every reader has to come to grips with. Are you going to be that little mousy rabbit? Or are you going to find in yourself somehow the ability to confront your doppelganger and that ability to soar high and that ability to become the, the skin changer you need to be? Right. Powerful stuff. It is. Hmm. There's one element of this chapter that I want to be sure that we don't miss that we don't mm. overlook and that is the recurrence of a song ah yeah they sing in this chapter again yeah so this is now the second song of the dwarves second of essentially effectively the second of three songs of the dwarves right so so far we've had the dwarves sing at bilbo's house again so this is the rebooting of that first of the first chapter so just in the same way there he heard the song he was falling asleep listening to thorin in the next room singing the song humming again the last verses of the song and now here you know we heard then we heard the elves sing then we heard the goblins sing the perversion of the elf song uh and you know, two songs of the of the goblins 
and now we've get the second song of the dwarves and here they are so in the same way in the in in beorn's hall there um you know gandalf or excuse me um you know beorn's gone out or he will have gone out here um the bilbo is laying down there they are the dwarves were sitting cross-legged on the floor around the fire and presently they began to sing and like the first time we're told some of the verses were like this but there were many more and their singing went on for a long while and then then proceeds the song and i'll just read maybe the first and then you know, the first stanza and, and yeah, please you know, summarize the rest the wind was on the withered heath but in the forest stirred no leaf their shadows lay by night and day and dark things silent crept beneath and, and more of the same theme and then there was a wind that moved from west to east all movement in the forest ceased but shrill and harsh across the marsh its whistling voices were released and then you know the the the, the grasses hiss there's smoke on the mountain smoke was in the air it left the world and took its it the dragon at this point was mm -hmm. sort of synonymous with the wind the hot wind comes in as a dragon and the dragon had left the world and took its flight over the wide seas of the night the moon set sail upon the gale the stars were fanned in leaping light and so we're given this series of images throughout this this version of the song of things are pretty like they're they're over the misty mountains gold will go and find our long forgotten gold and reclaim it, it was the the song they sang uh, back at Bilbo's house, here they're singing a song of destruction and fire and swiftly arriving wind from west to east, which is seems to me not you know at one and the same time it's a recounting, it's a calling up of a. I mean, it's a furthering of the first song, yeah. in the way that here the the dragon here's the destruction wrought by the dragon, but the dragon has a hot wind of fire that comes speeding in and engulfs everything, but also it's not explicitly about the dragon. Like the, you, we could see the symbolism was referring to other things if we didn't know the background, mm. we didn't know the backstory. And, and is it the dragon? Is it the dragon? Is it sort of like the dragon spirit also that can be like this? Is that, is it beginning to possess them in some way in a little bit? There's something, you know, it's not possessing them, but kind of a foreshadowing of, you know, they begin, they begin to get pretty grabby, grabby handsy here. Pretty, they, they begin to get more dragony the closer we approximate. Now, as they enter the dark wood into Mirkwood, right, they get, they, they're gluttonous. They go through the food really fast, rather, rather fast. Then they start to get hangry. Then they chase after the elves, cause all sort of ruckus, right, in the, in the coming chapters here. And then they get, they're, 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 they just become harder to deal with, harder to be around. Mm -hmm. right they cause trouble that gets them locked up in prison and the elf king's you know lairs there um and of course culminating when they get to the the, the mountain itself and the problems that are there but you know there's a sense that now we're talking about something that's a spirit of the air right it's not just the historic dragon smaug we're talking about now an elemental force yeah uh and they're singing this song and this is when they aren't apart it's like he doesn't he doesn't care about gold. You know, we're told he doesn't care about gold, about dwarf things, mining, crafting stuff in the sense of metal craft. He's not into that. He doesn't care much for dwarves. And they start singing this and he's just, I'm going to go outside. I got to do, go do my bear thing for a while. And he yeah. recommunes with nature. And there's a bear dance, right? These bears were told yep. shuffling around all night. Uh, so there's a regular, what do they call it? They're regular bears. Was it just a regular bears meeting? I, there's a word I feel like he used, and I can't think of what it is. But, I mean, it's like a bear moot. <laughs> yeah, know? bear moot, basically, yeah.
I'm glad you brought this up. This is a, this is a really interesting point to me. Um, first off, uh, Tolkien is very aware of song, and this is kind of like, it's like a theme in a symphony that comes up again and then comes up again, you know, and so it ties exactly. the thing together because you see the song coming up in different places. And we've spoken about that before. Uh, it's often been uh, misinterpreted or poorly interpreted. I think in the movie, they, they really did a nice job with the singing of this song. Um, mm -hmm. Tolkien's poetry has often been criticized as being kind of flat and, and dull. Uh, but it's only flat and dull because he didn't know how to write music. And the, the, the poetry is supposed to go with music. If it's you hear exactly. music, you hear just how powerful this stuff really is. That's why I like what they did in the Jackson movie with the song. It, 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 it harkened back to that Russian Orthodox chant style, which I think is really what mm -hmm. he's thinking here. This, this style is different yeah. from the... Elvis singing is far more like the troubadours, the French troubadours singing, you know, and yeah, I can see, uh, I can see it being done in such a way that you have lute and you have a drum and you have the fife. This is far more like the, the, the chants, the dirges, the drones that they would use uh, in the Russian yeah. Orthodox. And it's, it is a, like you said, it's a religious song. And we remember what happened when they sang it, other verses, but they sang it the first time in Bilbo's home how it, it affected Bilbo, because it called up in him a dragon thing. Uh, right. He wanted to journey. He wanted to go get the gold. He wanted to contest with dragons. Mm -hmm. So there's something in the song and the style of the music that calls up a, a, a martial spirit, a thumaltic spirit, the Greeks would say. It's kind of like the, the Spartans who would sing their paean as they went into battle. Uh, not just some ditty, you know, not even some, right. it's not even some um, a cheerleading squad. This was a religious song that, that galvanized the head in the Spartans and other ancient peoples, galvanized the head to do this tremendous act. So you're absolutely right in saying that this changes the nature of the dwarves in this, if I can say second of three, second part of the story. There are three parts to the story, I think. We've crossed the Rubicon of the first. We're now into the second. Right. We're into the this second. It's the beginning of the second. Story, yeah. Dwarves are different. And you're right. They're different. They're not just more dependent on Bilbo. We see that happening. Mm -hmm. But they're also, as you said, more, more eager for getting their gold back, more grabby for other things that they think are due to them. In mm -hmm. fact, they get, you could almost say, they get more to be like the dark dwarves, the actual Noldor, the, of, or the original form of the dwarves, than the nice, mm -hmm. sweet, Walt Disney dwarves that, uh, right. that Tolkien hated. You know, he couldn't stand the Disney version of, of the dwarves. Mm -hmm. uh, even his dwarves, the, his dwarves at the beginning even are not like that, but um, they right. become less like that in this section, if you will. Uh, and by the way, for the record, I actually did a recording of this just recently, so I'm glad you brought it up. I think I'll tag it on to the end of this video. Um, Good. Recording uh, with the music that I, that I composed based around the song... Um, I, I am a poor stranger, and I'm far, far from my home. Wayfaring stranger. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. But I, I, I set it to that music. So I'll put it at the end of this. So oh, very cool. Please but do. I, That'll be good. I really like the point here that this is, is not just a reboot. It is a conjuring. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Changes the drawers. 
But Bilbo, strikingly enough, goes into a sleep right after this song. He stays with the whole song, but he, he goes into a sleep. And the sleep he goes into is, is like that magical sleep of Adam or the, the mm-hmm. magical sleep that comes upon um, a, a character right before the transformation again. Because right. it's after when he wakes up, he, you know, he's, the other dwarves say, you know, get up and all this, and he wants breakfast. But it's after this they find out Bayorn has found out the truth of their story. And mm-hmm. he, has, he has decapitated the, the goblin. He's taken the dwarf or taken the, the wolf and, and flayed it. And the dwarves are seeing how powerful yeah. this really is. So if, if Bayorn is what Bilbo could become or should become, mm-hmm. I'm all reminded of, <laughs> I, I won't say this happened. I'm almost reminded of the, the character that goes to sleep and then at nighttime gets up and does these amazingly powerful, horrible things and then wakes up not knowing that he did them. You know, it's almost like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like a, what, a spawn or something like that, you know. Or, right. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's not far off. That's interesting because that's, because, you know, it's not, he doesn't quite do that. Uh, but yeah. sort of, you know, if we piece the things together, Bilbo falls asleep, and then the 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 ideal self, Bilbo, that could be, you know, like would, would not the non-Bilbo, but the could be, um, goes off and 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 really fast in bare form, goes yeah. and slays. There's a way in which the you know Beorn now become bear spirit, in some ways can totemistically bring with him. Bilbo in the enchanted sleep. You know what I mean? Like there's this sense of like on a higher spiritual plane that the the the, the Hobbit himself is totemistically connected to the bear yeah. spirit then that goes off and does these things because that's what in some ways internally to him is 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 in its potentiality is planted. The seed is planted because later on the next real sleep that we go into depth that he or the next enchanted sleep that he really falls into, or semi-enchanted sleep, he wakes up and there's a spider binding him right exactly. in the dark forest, and exactly. he slays. And so he does do that thing yes, there. Yes. Yeah. And because already the totem has done this for him now. Yeah. So he. So he, that's and, cool. I like that. It's because the song constitutes the destruction of the old life, but it also constitutes the mm-hmm. fire in Bilbo. And so when Bilbo goes off and sleeps, and in the dreamlike world, Bayorn goes out and kicks tail all over the goblin, goes, kicks goblin butt. And and that's, it's Bilbo, you know? It's like the, it's like the berserker in battle. It's like the shaman who, who dons the, the totem of the animal and becomes that animal. Um, Bilbo basically is Bayorn. Um, mm-hmm. I bet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'd same, rather be Bayorn, but I think it's great. The same Bruce, principle. Bruce Wayne goes out and becomes the Batman. Uh, he, he doesn't change his skin. He changes his skin. Goes, yeah. yeah. He has a nice cream man. I mean, that would be different, right? <laughs> <laughs> he becomes an animal. But that animal yeah. quality, that animal totem that ends up allowing him to do the things that he does that can affect change he couldn't affect if he was just a pipe-smoking overeater in his home all alone. As he is right. at the beginning, so it is a, is a transformational chapter, where I think Bilbo has he's experienced the realm of the Fae, and he has immersed himself to some degree in the realm of the Fae, and he's eaten the food of the underworld, the food of the Fae, eaten the food of the Fae here again, yeah. yeah. And so now he is 
becoming the skin changer himself. In fact, he yeah. His skin and he becomes something different. Huh. Yeah. How very, very interesting. Well, okay. For the sake of time, we got to say that brings us to the very last thing to, to note on this camera. That's, I love that point. That was a great point. The last thing is the final words that Gandalf gives him right before they go to Mirkwood. Because they're about to go into Mirkwood. And Gandalf says, okay, first off, return the horses. Mm -hmm. Because anyone, right? But um, when they get to Mirkwood, Gandalf says, I'm not going to go with you. You have to go through. I'm not going to go with you. And they're all weeping dwarf tears, you know, and boo-hoo-hooing and all this. And Bilbo even asks, isn't there some, can we go another way? You know, do we have to go through this death-like situation? You're telling us to go into this dark abyssal wood. Do we have right. to go? This is a really neat passage to tag on at the end of the chapter. It reminds me of Dante at the beginning of the Inferno, who says, isn't there another way to go besides through hell? Do I, do I have to go through hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Virgil's like, no, what are you insane? Let's go. Um, <laughs> well, here, here, there is no Virgil. They're on their own, you know, because Gandalf has to yeah. leave. So, Virgil's actually leaving them at this point. Yeah, Virgil's like, okay, you know, you go to hell. Here's <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. at the very end, if you don't mind, I'm going to read this. And we'll, we'll yeah, yeah, please do. Okay. Uh, first off, they're, they're coming up to the, to the forest. And, and the hobbit groans and says, do we really have to go through, groaned the hobbit, you know. Yes, you do, says the wizard. He's very matter of fact. If you want to get to the other side, you must either go through or give up your quest. And I'm not going to allow you to back out now, Mr. Baggins. I'm ashamed of you for thinking of it. You've got to look after all these dwarves for me, he laughed. Again, which is a wonderful passage because now Bilbo is no longer the thief at the bottom rung of the food chain. He has to look after the dwarves, right? right. No, no, I didn't mean that. I, I meant, is there no way around? There is, sure, yeah. If you care to go 200 miles or so out of your way north and twice that south, but you wouldn't get a safe path, e path even then. There are no safe paths in this part of the world. Remember, you were over the edge of the wild now, and in for all sorts of fun wherever you go. Before you could get round Mirkwood in the north, you would go be right among the slopes of the Grey Mountains, and they are simply stiff with goblins and hobgoblins and orcs of the worst description. Before you could get round it in the south, you would get into the land of the Necromancer. We know who that is. And even you, Bilbo, won't need me to tell you tales of that black sorcerer. I don't advise you to go anywhere near the places overlooked by his dark tower. Stick to the forest track. Keep your spirits up. Hope for the best. And with a tremendous slice of luck, you may come out one day and see the long marshes lying below you. And beyond them, high in the east, the lonely mountain where dear old Smog lives. Though I hope he's not expecting you. <laughs> Gandalf's just a ray of sunshine. Ta -ta. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there are no safe paths in the wild. Yeah. No safe paths. That's stuck with me since, gosh, since I first read this book. Yeah. Way back as a wee bum. There are no safe paths. If we think that there's a path somewhere along this life that's going to be safe, no. it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Uh, even the path of thinking that we are at home and domestic bliss in our bourgeois world, even that is not really a safe path, right? It's just a stagnant path. Right. The path in we fact, choose... Yeah, you were going to say... No, no. 
Go ahead. The paths that we choose are either going to take us to a realm where we have to meet dangerous goblins, or it's going to take us to a path where we have to meet a really very difficult fallen angel, like, like Sauron, the necromancer, or we have to go straight through the darkness of suffering and, and death and uh, come out on the other end, hopefully come out on the other end. There's no guarantee. Maybe with a great slice of luck, we'll arrive great. at the other end. Yeah. <laughs> to finally begin to finally begin the quest and the challenge. Yeah. Then then you could really face the tough part. Right. <laughs> if it's you're lucky. Uh, someday. Yeah. yeah. And I guess you can look at Gandalf here as being kind of cruel in a way. But I don't think he's cruel. I think he's more like the the the, the teacher. He's more like a, a professor who says, Look, yeah, I can suffer this way by writing the, the essay. Or you could suffer another way by failing the class, or you can suffer by being ignorant the rest of your life. But right. there's no path down that's not going to be suffering in some degree. And I can't write the essay for you. Can't write the essay for you, right? right. <laughs> it's not going to work that just, way. And we find, of course, he's not just abandoning them, but he himself is going down to where he would not recommend anybody goes. He goes to face the necromancer, right? Yeah. Yeah, he and the other wizards go to drive Sauron out of that, and then Sauron goes and goes into Mordor. But yeah, that's that's another piece of the, of this intricate dialogue, the intricate narrative that he's constructing here. Gandalf doesn't just go away to smoke weed, you know, with Radagast. Right. He goes down to do something which, for him, is quite the challenge to face something akin to a Balrog. Um, because they aren't just, this is not just an eviction notice and Sauron getting out peacefully. It's going to be a serious battle. I don't know whether Tolkien thought that through when he wrote the passage or whether the necromancer was just a bad wizard. I really don't know. I don't know. But even there, the, the death magic sorcerer, right? The, the death sorcerer, you're going to go face death. I mean, that's, that's enough, Right. Right. But that right. there, no matter what, even for Gandalf, there are no safe paths. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really, this is why the book has so much uh, oomph to it. Oomph, it's a manly book. <clears throat> because basically, as a man, now I, I'm speaking as a man because that's what I am. I can't say, you know, as a woman. As a man, we have to recognize that our lives are going to be tough. And there will be moments of great joy and peace and bliss. But what we have to do is not avoid the fact that life can be tough and difficult and difficult things you have to handle. And either you gird up your loins to use the old expression, or you cower and you break and you slobber all over yourself. You know, and I think that the, the second one is so undignified and so horrible and is not devoid of suffering, right? Mm -hmm. That as a man, you just, you, you have to gird up your loins and do this tough thing. Uh, much as we may not like to do whatever it is, but that's what right. can't often and that's what the whole book is kind of saying. It's like, you know, you, if you're going to be the Bayorn, if you're going to take on this mantle, it means you have to do the tough things. Right. So. And risk and I think it's a good place to, to finish. Ga Gandalf says goodbye. Leave the path, right? Don't leave the path. And then we end with, he, they plunged into the forest. Right? So right. go right. Huh. It's a good place to stop, don't you think? I agree. Good. Cameron farewell, as a, wherever you fare. Yes, indeed. Farewell, wherever you fare. May the wind under your wings uh, carry you to your back home to your Aries. Um, it's been a pleasure. So once again, a pleasure.
Thank you, Mr. Lasseter. Thank you, Dr. Thompson. We'll see you in the near future. All right. See you then.
That concludes another episode of Avalon Mentors Podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, would you kindly thumb the like button and also give the show a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on. Until next time, cast off the works of darkness, put upon you the armor of light. So long.